Hello guys, and a warm welcome to the latest episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, a show that looks at and recounts the lesser known and usually more obscure crimes from the shores of the UK. As ever, I'm your host Paul, the True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title, and as always, I thank you guys for joining me. I hope that this episode finds everybody good. Thanks very much for all of the continuing support, shares and reviews of the show by the way along with special thanks and shout-outs to my new and updating Patreon supporters. That's Ruby Moon, Ian Strachan, Natalie Taylor, Rianne Burgess, Kate Rogers, Joe Rayson, Zoe Ruskin, Matthew Jarrett, Shannon Austin, the returning Jason Abercrombie, and Josie Miller, who has kindly increased her support. Thank you so much, guys. It's most kind and appreciated, and stuff's on its way to some, while I hope the rest have enjoyed the bonus episodes that there are to date. Although this is the season finale, and I'm off for a few weeks, there will still be bonus Patreon episode number 9 out on October the 1st. I'm tussling between a choice of two cases for the bonus episode right now, but one of them will be out come the 1st of October, and probably the other on 1st of November. These two can be yours for a very reasonable contribution each month, and should you be interested in becoming a Patreon supporter of the show, then the link will as ever be alongside the social media links in the episode show notes for this week. Before we carry on though, a word first from this week's sponsor of the show. When you finish a long week in work, I'm sure for many you like nothing more than settling down with a good beer. But why drink good beer when you can drink great beer? And this is where Honest Brew comes in. Honest Brew is a UK-based craft beer company which delivers craft beer mixed boxes or individual beers. For the choice of more than 400 from a worldwide selection of breweries, the Honest Brew shop is the online retail shop for beer lovers. And the true crime enthusiast's friends at Honest Brew are giving you the chance to get free shipping on a craft beer introduction case by heading to www.honestbrew.co.uk forward slash true crime. Honest Brew were kind enough to send the True Crime Enthusiast a craft beer introduction box, and as well as a decent Honest Brew bar blade that I got with it, I got a right mixed box of beers, from such weird and wonderful names like Domino Topple, right through to Pile of Face, right back through Sleeping Lemons, and up to Pompel Macello. Now that's not bad for an introduction box, is it? So let's take the craft introduction case which Honest Brew have sought out a selection of beers from the UK, Ireland, Spain, Portugal and New Zealand, and they've hand-picked 10 styles of craft beer from these countries. You'll get 12 individual beers to taste, making your way through different styles such as IPA, Porter, Pale Ale and Hopped Weiss Beer. With a mix such as these, you can see what styles you like and what you don't like, and for each one that you love, you can be sure that Honest Brew have 70 more to suit your tastes. Produced from the finest ingredients from the best microbreweries, 90% of the beers sourced for customers won't be found in your standard supermarket. So if you're a craft beer casual, then try Honest Brew and become a hardcore fan. Head over to www.honestbrew.co.uk forward slash true crime to get your free shipping on the craft introduction case. I'd like to remind as well that I'm always willing and eager to hear suggestions for cases to cover on the show. I did mention another listener episode before the end of this series, but it hasn't made the running order. It will be back next series though, so for any of you out there who do fancy writing a guest piece for the show, I'm still very keen to hear from you. 
Several of you guys have gotten in touch with some fantastic cases and a few are now being researched and written up for the next listener episode, which I like because it's how I started doing this. Plus it kind of gives me the week off too now and again. So that's pretty cool, isn't it? And here we are then, the season finale of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast season two. Last week, we looked at the disappearance of Susie Lamplew, probably the most celebrated and widely known case featured on the show to date. Whilst no one has ever been charged with her abduction and murder, many people, including the Metropolitan Police, believe that her likely killer has spent the past 29 years incarcerated as a Category A prisoner in the British prison system. He received three life sentences for a string of horrific crimes, and his story forms the season finale of the show. Please be advised that this week's episode contains descriptions of crimes and strong language that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so please use your discretion as always. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast, as this week, for the final time in this series, we look back at part two of Mr Kipper, Dead Woman's Ditch. When Bristol pensioners Amelia and George Hart were out for a drive one sunny afternoon, they never suspected the scary and bizarre sight that they were to come across. It was 2.15pm on the afternoon of Friday the 9th of October 1987, and George and Amelia were driving from their home in Bristol's Westbury Park to visit friends in the nearby district of Clevedon. The route took them across Bristol's Clifton Suspension Bridge and onto Bridge Road, which meets Lee Woods. Driving past a block of flats at the end of the road called Foy House, Amelia noticed a terrifying sight. In a clearing in an adjoining copse to the block of flats, the dark-clad figure of a man was highlighted savagely attacking someone who was screaming in protest on the floor. The heart slowed to a stop, and through the open window of the vehicle, they could hear the sickening sounds of someone being punched and kicked. They then heard the man shout, Come on, come on, I warned you what I would do, I warned you, and continued to assault his victim. The screams quickly died down, and then looking over his shoulder, the man became aware that the hearts were watching him. Amelia shouted to ask what he was doing, and the man disappeared from sight, but then emerged from the copse on his hands and knees, and loomed up on the pavement beside the vehicle. He had a wild-eyed, crazed look on his face and was breathing heavily. He shouted, Cow! at Amelia and tried to grab her through the car window, but she managed to wind the window up and she and George sped away. Turning to look as they drove off, Amelia noticed the man now had his back to them and was holding on to a lamppost and some tree branches. He looked at them by bending his head under his arm and his wild-eyed gaze met Amelia's. It terrified her. Eighteen months later, she was to tell this story to a packed and silent courtroom. The day before this, Thursday, October the 8th, 1987, was late night shopping at Bristol's city centre shops. One of the shoppers that evening was an attractive blonde sales manager for a Bristol clothing company who had only a few weeks before returned from her honeymoon in Capri. She'd been married for just a few weeks and that Thursday evening had headed out to shop for some new clothes. Detectives have never been able to establish exactly what happened, but the likely scenario went as follows. 
She had bought herself a new blue and white spotted evening dress and had returned to her car a yellow mini Clubman model, registration number HWL507N, that was parked in a car park near to the Broadmead shopping centre where she'd gone shopping. As she was loading her purchases into the vehicle, the predator who had spotted her and stalked her from the shopping centre struck quickly and silently. It's possible he even knew and recognised the attractive woman. They used one of the same local pubs as each other. Using a knife, or more likely a replica pistol, he waylaid her at her car, forced her into the vehicle, and made her drive to a flat in another part of the city. Dragging her inside, she was kept prisoner here, and was repeatedly raped and abused over the next 18 hours or so, before being taken away and battered to death in a patch of quiet woodland. It was to be almost six months later when her body was found, at a spot near the village of Overstowey in the Quantock Hills in Somerset, chillingly known in the local area as Dead Woman's Ditch, following a murder there in the 18th century. The woman's name was Shirley Banks, and by the time she was found, police had already arrested her killer. When Shirley was reported as missing on the evening of Friday the 9th of October 1987, detectives were immediately filled with foreboding and alarm bells rang. Just 24 hours previously in the city, a 30-year-old office recruitment administrator named Julia Holman had been out for a drink with friends after finishing work that day. The group had been at the Colonial Bar in central Bristol and Julia had parked a blue Ford Fiesta that morning at Cannons Marsh car park not too far away from her workplace. At about 6.50pm, she left her friends and walked back to her car, heading across the car park and upon reaching it, got into the car and pulled the door shut. As she placed a key into the ignition, a smartly dressed man walked up to the vehicle, opened her door and pointed a handgun at her. Julia's survival instincts kicked in here and she fought the man off, kicking and screaming and telling him quite bluntly to piss off before driving away. As she drove away, he calmly walked off in the direction of the city centre. Julia immediately drove back to the safety of the Colonial Bar and called police to report the incident. She described a man in his early to mid-thirties with collar-length dark hair, smartly dressed in a dark suit and tie with a beige Macintosh, and of dark complexion which Julia thought was Latin or possibly Italian. She also reported when the picture was shown to her later that evening, that the man was very similar in appearance to the photo fit of Mr Kipper. Yes, alarm bells had rung even then. And now, the first thought on detectives' minds was that this man had been more successful a day later. Shirley Ann Banks, her married name of just a few weeks, was 29 and had been born in Edinburgh in 1958 the eldest of three daughters to George and Elizabeth Reynolds. Moving to Liverpool and then down to the black country, Shirley had done well in school and had attained nine O-level qualifications and A-level passes in both English and history. She was also musically gifted, playing both the piano and violin, and although the possibility of university was open to her, she instead opted to study for a diploma in business management at Bristol Polytechnic. When she was 22, she'd met Richard Banks, a salesman for Bristol firm Pitney Bowes, 
and after an instant mutual attraction, they became a couple. They soon began living together, and after a few months had managed to get a mortgage on a property in Cold Harbour Road in Bristol's Redland district. By June 1984, Shirley had begun a job as a sales manager for a Bristol clothing company, where she soon settled in and made many friends. She began playing squash and going horse riding, which quickly became favoured pastimes of hers. And by early 1987, the couple had moved to the more upmarket Bristol district of Clifton, and had decided that after being together for so many years, they should take the plunge and get married. They did just that on the 22nd of August 1987 at Yeovil Registry Office, with a reception held for them at the home of Shirley's parents in Crewkern and a party for friends the following day. At the beginning of September, the couple jetted off on honeymoon to the island of Capri before returning to Bristol to begin their married life together. On Thursday the 8th of October 1987, Shirley had planned to go to the Broadmead Shopping Centre in Bristol to buy herself some new clothes. It was payday for Shirley, and she specifically reminded Richard to leave the chequebook for their joint account that morning. She then went off to work for the day as normal, before returning home that evening about 5.30pm. After changing her clothes, Shirley then got back into a battered yellow Mini Clubman car, registration number HWL, 507N and drove the short distance to Broadmead although it's unsure whereabouts Shirley parked a car exactly. At 7pm Shirley was seen in the shopping centre by a work colleague who she stopped to talk to for a few moments before continuing shopping. She went on and bought a blue and white full length floral dress in the Debenham store there and paid for it using a NatWest bank cheque from her and Richard's joint account. This transaction was timed at exactly 7.26pm, it was remembered by the sales assistant and confirmed during a subsequent check of the till recording transaction. After this, Shirley then simply vanished. This was the last trace of her. Richard Banks, meanwhile, had finished work that day at about 6pm and had headed straight to a pub near the couple's home, the Avon Gorge Hotel, for a few drinks with friends. At about 8pm, he telephoned home from the pub to speak to Shirley, but there was no answer. He went home for about 8.30pm, but when by about 10 o'clock there was still no sign of Shirley, Richard reasoned that she must have met up for a drink with friends, and so headed back out himself to their local pub, the Port of Call. Perhaps Shirley was there. She wasn't, however. Richard then headed back home and had a few more drinks, all the while growing more and more concerned about Shirley's whereabouts. Yet as he sat throughout the night, unsure what to do, why he didn't report Shirley as missing then is unclear. What is known is that it was 9am the next morning before he rang Shirley's workplace, Alexandra Workwear, only to be told the disconcerting news that Shirley had telephoned in sick just a little while earlier. Unbelievably, Richard still did not report Shirley as missing when he heard this. He was undoubtedly worried, but he carried on with his day, making occasional telephone calls home in case she was there, even returning home periodically to check if she'd been back. But nevertheless, it was that evening before a close friend of Shirley's, Karen Pierce, who Richard had contacted for assistance to see if she could help find Shirley, reported her as missing to Redland Police Station. Now coincidentally, 
the Bristol clothing company that Shirley worked for, Alexandra Workway, has featured on the show before. It was the location of armed maniac Kevin Weaver's rampage after killing his mother and sister just a few weeks before Shirley went missing. In the case I featured last year on the show in the first series, One Man's Fatal Obsession. Still out there if you haven't heard it already? So instinctively, detectives feared the worst had happened to Shirley. A happy newlywed doesn't just vanish of her own accord, and if something had happened and she was able to, then wouldn't she telephone her husband or family at least? The fears were especially heightened by news that a woman, apparently Shirley, had telephoned her office that morning and reported in sick. So Shirley had called her work, and the switchboard operator, who knew Shirley, was adamant that it was her, yet she hadn't called her husband to say where she was, or her family, or any of her friends. Had someone forced her to do this under duress? Police launched an immediate nationwide appeal for Shirley, and the investigation was launched, spearheaded by Detective Superintendent Tim Bryan and his team, nicknamed the Bride Squad. A full description of her was issued to police forces nationwide, along with details of her car, and a massive physical search was launched for her. It was similar to a search that had been carried out just over a year before for another missing young woman, the Fulham estate agent Susie Lamplew. Like that search, a mass area was covered high and low by police utilising cadaver dogs, police frogmen who searched Bristol docks and several pools and lakes in the area to no avail, and an RAF Canberra jet that carried out aerial reconnaissance over the area, seeking out a possible grave. Nothing was found. Meanwhile, Richard Banks issued a short but open letter to the press, asking for privacy at what was understandably a difficult time but pleading for anyone with information on the whereabouts of his wife to come forward and tell police. He'd been the initial suspect in his wife's disappearance and was questioned thoroughly by police, but was eventually ruled out as a suspect, although press speculation remained rife. He was left with the despair of not knowing where his new bride was, for there was no information coming forward. No one had seen any struggle or abduction, or Shirley or a car, and Shirley was happy and still caught up in the giddiness of being a newlywed. There were no money worries or secret life, and absolutely no question of another man involved. She was devoted to her husband. They'd even been planning to soon start a family. It was to be three weeks before any breakthrough in the inquiry. It's more than a 100 miles away in the town of Royal Leamington Spa in Warwickshire, on Thursday the 29th of October 1987. At 3.55pm that day, the owner of a boutique on the town's Regent Street called Ginger, 40-year-old Carmel Cleary, was arranging clothes on a rail there. There was only her and a co-worker, Jane Child, in the shop at the time, when the door opened and a man entered. He was wearing black trousers, a zip-up grey bomber jacket, and a crash helmet with an open visor. Claiming that he'd come to buy a gift for someone, Carmel instantly got an uneasy feeling about the man, and she asked Jane to call the shop next door, room service, on the pretext of settling an account with them. In reality, a ploy to get someone else into the shop. Suddenly, the man was next to the two women holding a serrated, orange-handled knife in his hand. He pointed it towards Carmel's stomach and said to Jane, 
Turn out the lights, lock the door, and if you scream, I'll knife her. At this point, Carmel managed to make a run for it and ran out into the street, screaming that there was a man in the shop with a knife. Hearing her screams, a local builder working nearby, Andrew Riley, ran over to see what was up, just as the man dashed out of Ginger. Andrew decided to give chase, and almost immediately was joined by another man who'd also heard the screams, Robert Filer. They were to lose sight of the man along nearby Augusta Place, but they waited, reasoning that he would have to appear at some point, as he wouldn't have had time to get to the end of the road. Sure enough, after a short time, they spotted a man that they both believed to be the same guy they'd chased, now minus the jacket and crash helmet, and carrying a blue plastic bag. Watching him from a short distance away, when the man raised the dark sweater that he had on over his white shirt, the two men saw what they perceived to be an orange stick protruding from his waistband. Running towards him, the man again disappeared from their view before they spotted him again coming from the vicinity of St. Peter's Church. He was now minus the blue plastic bag. But as luck would have it, two police officers were in a patrol car talking to a passing motorist who'd seen the pursuit and had contacted police using his car phone. One of the pursuers accompanied police to where he'd seen the man duck out of the church grounds, while the other continued following the man, keeping him in sight. At the church, amongst rubbish at the side of the building, a blue plastic bag containing a crash helmet and grey jacket was found. The carrier bag also had traces of blood on it. PCs George Sears and Robert Calvert immediately went and intercepted the man, who was still being followed by Robert Filer, in front of the Leamington Spa Regal Cinema. When he was made to empty his pockets, he was found to have a deeply cut right hand. He was immediately arrested on suspicion of attempted robbery and was taken to Leamington Spa Police Station. The man police had arrested was 33-year-old John David Gies Canan, a man with a history of violent robbery and sex crimes that had only been released from prison a year before after serving five years of an eight-year prison sentence for rape and robbery. A car being leased by Canan, a black BMW registration number A936FJU, was found parked in nearby Portland Street and was searched. Inside the cluttered car were found all number of items, clothing and general junk, but most apparent to police were a set of keys to a flat in Foy House in Bristol's Lee Woods area, a pair of handcuffs, an orange-handled knife, and a replica pistol that were all found inside the vehicle. Looking further into the glove compartment, they were to make another interesting discovery. There was a vehicle tax disc, not an expired one from the BMW, but from a completely different vehicle altogether. A yellow Mini Clubman, registration number HWL507N. The relevance of this was of course realised, and the Bride Squad in Bristol were duly informed of this important discovery. Detective Chief Inspector Brian Saunders and Detective Inspector Terry Jones of the investigating team immediately travelled over to Warwickshire, where at 11.15pm on Friday the 30th of October, John Canan was arrested on suspicion of the abduction of Shirley Banks. He replied that he understood in response to being cautioned, but claimed that he'd never met Shirley Banks or seen her, he didn't know her apart from that she was missing, 
and at no time had she ever been in his vehicle or his flat. A thorough search of Canaan's flat was carried out within hours of him being returned to Bristol after his arrest in Leamington Spa, where senior crime officers practically took it apart over the weekend, swept and dusted every possible surface for prints, and removed countless items away for examination. But it was in the garage allocated to the flat, flat number two, that the biggest lead was found. It was Shirley's missing car. It had been crudely hand-painted blue and kitted out with false registration plates reading SLP386S affixed over the original number plates. But of Shirley herself, there was no sign. Canan's explanation for the vehicle being there was that he'd bought it from a man called Hodgson for £125 at a Bristol car auction some days before. Canan claimed that when he realised it belonged to the missing Shirley, he panicked, thinking that with his past criminal record, he would be blamed for her disappearance. He decided to hide and paint the car and fit false number plates to it before disposing of it. He could only give a vague description of this supposed car seller, and subsequently his weak story, in which he did have an answer for everything put to him, was treated like the sack of lies that it clearly was by police. Canan was subsequently charged with kidnapping Shirley, the theft of her vehicle, the assault and attempted robbery in Leamington Spa, and with the attempted abduction of Julia Holman, whose attempted abduction had been linked with Shirley's disappearance, and who'd unquestionably picked him out of an identity parade following his arrest. These charges were enough to hold him in custody whilst the investigation into Shirley's disappearance continued. Canaan was still denying ever even having seen Shirley. By this time, Shirley had been missing for well over a month and there was still no sign of her. Now, Avon and Somerset police took two unusual measures. Although he hadn't been brought to trial, a photograph of Canaan was issued to the media without naming him asking for information to come in from anyone who'd had any dealings with him over the previous year. Police also released photographs of four keys that he had in his possession that he wouldn't identify, hoping someone may connect them as belonging to a particular shed or a garage or empty property, where Shirley was possibly being held. It was a slim hope really, and the likelihood that she was still alive had all by now been ruled out, but police still had to try. Many people did come forward to give the detective some colour to Canaan's life, but no information was received that led them anywhere nearer to Shirley's location. A taxi driver, David Jones, did report that on Friday the 9th of October 1987, he'd been dispatched to flat number 2 at Foy House, where he was to collect a female fare and take her to Temple Meads railway station. He duly arrived there that morning and knocked on the door of number 2, but then a man appeared and quite forcefully told the driver that he'd been mistaken and no one had ordered a taxi from that location. He was sure that the man was John Canan and afterwards picked him out of an identity parade. A shopkeeper who Canan had ordered potted plants from also came forward to say that she'd rang him at his flat early on the morning of the 9th of October and he had answered, but he'd sounded sluggish and completely out of it when he had answered as though he didn't know who it was that was speaking. She considered that she'd just woke him up, and he put it down to him needing a while to get going in the morning. Undoubtedly, 
because he'd been up throughout the night doing unspeakable and horrendous acts. Throughout many hours of police interviews, step by step, DCI Saunders strengthened the case against John Canan, who was cocky, arrogant and had an answer for absolutely everything throughout his countless interviews. He was quick thinking and argumentative, whereas Brian Saunders was patient and methodical. Canan would often backtrack and go off on tangents when he needed thinking time about something put to him, or else would just maintain a no-comment stance or other times he went out of his way to try to wrestle control of the interview from police officers, answering questions with questions. As time went on, more charges were to be brought against Canaan for historical offences that he'd committed. We'll come on to that. But the most pressing charge did not come until the 22nd of December 1987. That day, Canan was again interviewed and once again categorically denied ever having met Shirley. He was then presented with the evidence of Shirley Banks's thumbprint that forensic officers had just identified on a document found in his flat. It was a clear match to prints taken from the Banks' house, and following this bombshell evidence, John Canan was charged with the murder of Shirley Banks. It was to be Easter Sunday 1988, the 3rd of April, that the mystery of Shirley's whereabouts was finally solved. A woman named Jill Hooper, out with her family gathering moss for a floral display, saw what she thought to be a tailor's dummy floating in a lonely flooded ditch on Forestry Commission land in Overstowey near Bridgewater. It's sadly never a mannequin, is it though? And when she looked closer... What she saw was enough to set her off running for help. It was the badly decomposed body of a woman. The body was naked, but was still wearing a wedding ring and gold chain around the neck. She'd been bludgeoned to death with a large stone found nearby, and at least five or six powerful blows had fractured the woman's skull. Because of the advanced state of decomposition, it was impossible for a completely accurate time of death to be ascertained but several pathologists who examined the body agreed that she'd been dead for several months. Exposure to the winter elements and animal interference to the body had destroyed much of the forensic evidence, but the freezing waters of the ditch had managed to preserve one remarkable clue for police. The left thumb of the corpse was preserved in near-perfect condition, enough for fingerprint experts to be able to lift a clear impression. With a high profile still missing Shirley firmly in mind, this print was compared with a set of prints that had been taken from Shirley's flat, and there was a 100% match. A check of Shirley's dental records confirmed beyond doubt that it was indeed the tragic newlywed that had been found. Shirley's family and her devastated husband Richard could now finally begin to grieve. The trial of John Canaan opened at Exeter Crown Court on the 5th of April 1989, where he was charged with some 16 offences in total, but on the first day the jury did not hear about Shirley. Instead, the first day was taken up hearing a savage rape that Canaan had committed in Reading, Berkshire, almost a year to the day before Shirley was abducted. Late at night on the 6th of October 1986, a married woman we shall call her Donna Tucker, had had an argument at home with her husband 
and had stormed out, driving off in a car to go for some headspace and to cool down. She found herself driving to the Chantry area of Reading, where she parked up in a side street and got out a book. As she was sat reading in a Vauxhall Cavalier, a stranger approached the vehicle and asked her for directions to Balfour Drive. When she went to look in the glove compartment for a local A to Z, the man pulled out a knife, wrenched the door open, and told the woman that he would kill her if she didn't comply with his instructions. Forcing the woman into the back seat of the vehicle, the man then pulled a balaclava over his face and drove the car away to the nearby town of Thiel, where he stopped in a quiet road leading to an industrial estate. There, he asked the terrified woman her name, and when she told him, he turned to the terrified woman and said to her, You can just call me horse. Can you imagine how frightening that must have been for her? He then got into the rear of the vehicle with her and savagely raped her. Stopping for a cigarette, he then raped her again, followed by committing buggery upon her. Apparently satisfied now, he then drove the vehicle back towards Reading Railway Station and parked it up in nearby Abattoir Road, carefully wiping down the interior of the vehicle to avoid leaving any fingerprints. He then, get this right, he then told the distraught woman to be good or be careful, kissed her on the cheek and vanished into the night. What an absolute piece of filth. Absolutely disgusting that, isn't it? It's awful, awful thing to do. Kanan was arrested on suspicion of this crime a week later after his name was put forward as a likeness to the description of the rapist but he volunteered an alibi for the night of the rape. He also volunteered both blood and saliva samples for police to carry out DNA tests against samples left by the rapist, which were taken. Now in 1986, DNA testing was still in its relative infancy, and when police tested Canaan's DNA against semen from the rapist that was found on the woman's underwear, the results showed only a 1 in 2,000 chance that Canaan was the rapist. CPS lawyers decided that those odds were not short enough to charge him with a crime, and he went free. But a year later, after his arrest in the Shirley Banks case, more blood samples were taken from him. Detectives in Reading ordered new tests using these new samples against the semen samples taken from their rape case, and the results from this second test show just how miraculous the development of DNA testing was. In 12 months, testing had come on so far that forensic scientists could now calculate the odds of Donna's rapist being anyone other than John Canaan at a mind-blowing 260 million to one. Needless to say, the CPS this time decided charges could be brought, and the DNA evidence was plenty strong enough to convict Canaan of the Reading rape. Throughout the remainder of the trial, witness after witness was called by the prosecution, testifying to powerful items of evidence such as Canaan's responses to questioning when the 500-page transcript of his tape-recorded interviews was read out in court, or forensic scientists who testified to things like the fingerprint evidence taken from Canaan's flat that matched Shirley's thumbprint. Canaan could offer no defence whatsoever. The prosecution evidence was overwhelming. After a three-week trial, the jury took just five hours on the 27th of April 1989 to find John Canaan guilty of the kidnapping and rape of Donna Tucker in Reading. The following day, 
the jury returned with guilty verdicts in the kidnapping and murder of Shirley Banks and the attempted abduction of Julia Holman. The judge, Mr Justice Drake, told Canan, You are a highly intelligent man who can show considerable charm and you are extremely attractive to some women, but under that veneer of charm there lies a most evil, violent and horrible side to your character. It may be that you have an obsession with enjoying sex acts by force or threat of force, and if the woman victim does not submit, there is the danger you will become violent. It is my duty to make sure that you are never at liberty again to commit such offences against women. Canan was then sentenced to three life sentences, with the recommendation that he should never be released. He said nothing, and showed no emotion as he was taken away. He remains in York's full Sutton prison to this day, now aged 64 years old. As Canan has never admitted to the murder of Shirley Banks, the best guess as to the events leading up to her death is as follows. Shirley was abducted on the Thursday evening and forced to drive to Foy House, where she was dragged inside and raped repeatedly by Canan. The following morning, Canan set out with his captive to drive down to Somerset, but Shirley made a run for it into the copse adjacent to Foy House. Canan chased her, caught her and gave her a severe beating, the assault that was witnessed by the hearts. When they'd fled, he managed to get Shirley back into the car and drove down to Overstowey, where he battered the terrified woman to death with a heavy rock and discarded her body in the stream. But could it be that Shirley was not Canaan's first victim, and there had been others? He was certainly a dangerous predator, and police wondered if he had killed before. Looking at where he'd been in the previous year since his release from prison, two cases appeared to jump out to police, cases that Canaan has long since become the prime suspect in. The murder of Sandra Court in Bournemouth in May 1986, and the case that we featured last week on the show, the disappearance of Susie Lamplew. He was known to have definitely been in Poole on 3rd of May 1986, the night that 27-year-old Sandra Court was found strangled five miles away in Bournemouth. Sandra had been out that evening with friends celebrating leaving her old job at the Abbey Life Insurance Company in Bournemouth, which she was leaving before taking up a job and a new life as a nanny in Spain. Sandra was last seen alive leaving Steps Nightclub in Swithins Road in the Lansdowne area of the town at about 2am. Slightly drunk, she'd called a taxi to take her to her sister's house in Throop, where she was staying that evening, but after paying the taxi driver off, she found that she was locked out of her sister's house. It is unclear what happened following this, but police believe that Sandra decided to walk the short distance from her sister's to her parents' home. Somewhere en route to there, she met a killer. Her body was found the following evening at 7pm, floating in a ditch and at a spot known as Avon Causeway, near Hearn, a village near Christchurch, and some seven miles away from his sister's house. Sandra's necklace, shoes, jacket and handbag were all missing, but there were no apparent signs of any sexual assault. Her body was found wearing the white blouse and black ski pants that she'd been out in that evening. Some of her belongings were later found strewn about at scattered spots near to the general area, as though they'd been dumped from a moving vehicle. 
Despite an intensive investigation at the time, no one has ever been charged with Sandra's murder and her death remains officially unsolved. Detectives know that on the evening Sandra was out celebrating, Canan was in the area with another man that he'd met while serving a prison sentence in a hostel near Wormwood Scrubs and that both had travelled to Dorset in the other man's car. At that time, Canan was living in the hostel in West London to prepare him for his full release and so was allowed a liberal regime and could go for days out as long as he was back and allocated time. He duly reported back to the hostel as agreed on the 4th of May 1986. A few days after Sandra's murder, Bournemouth police received a handwritten anonymous 13-line letter claiming to be from Sandra's killer. The purpose of the letter is unclear, but it read as follows. Dear Sir, I am writing to tell you that the tragic death of Sandra Court was a complete and utter accident. In no form is the person a killer or murderer. The person concerned is deeply unhappy, hurt and in total shock. The only reason that the person has not come forward is the fact of being afraid that their explanation will not be believed. Please, I beg, take this letter to be of the truth. Now why write such a letter and not come forward? unless it's some sort of game. Handwriting experts who've analysed the letter claim that it's written by someone using their alternate writing hand in a deliberate attempt to disguise the handwriting. These experts have also compared the anonymous letter with Canan's own handwriting and say there are more than 25 identifiable similarities in style, spacing and content. Following Canan's conviction for Shirley's murder, Detectives visited him in Wakefield Prison and questioned him about the case. Canan has always denied any involvement in the murder, but is reported to be vague and evasive about his exact movements that weekend in Dorset. Yet he can be proven to have been there over that time frame, so you would think it would be in his best interest to establish his alibi, using the impressive memory that he has for recalling dates and times and events when it suits him to. Yet he never has done this. But the higher profile case Canan has long been connected with is the disappearance of Susie Lamplew, the case featured last week on the show. A scientific link to tie Canan to Susie's disappearance has never been found, but the circumstantial evidence is certainly there in abundance. Canan again denies any link to the disappearance, but has been named by police as being the person they consider murdered Susie and both Diana and Paul Lamplew strongly believed that Canan was responsible too. In 1990, Diana Lamplew even issued a public statement saying, We are not looking for anyone else. We feel very relieved that, in our estimation, the man who killed Susie cannot kill anybody else. There are reports that a vehicle once used by Canan, a vehicle he had access to whilst in the prison hostel, had been found in a scrapyard more than 20 years later. A thorough forensic examination of the vehicle placed Canan's DNA in it and also the DNA of Susie Lamplew. Charges were not brought following this, however, as it was deemed impossible to say that both had been in the vehicle at the same time. Seriously? Okay then, so putting DNA aside that can link both of them to a space of little more than two feet apart... What else suggests that Canan is the mysterious Mr. Kipper? 
there's much circumstantial evidence to suggest so. Canaan was, at the time of Susie's disappearance, released from the prison hostel just three days before, and the sentence was being served at Wormwood Scrubs Prison, less than three miles from Fulham, where Susie disappeared. Before finishing his sentence, he'd reportedly found part-time work as a car salesman with a local BMW dealership, regularly driving the vehicles, which again would tie in with the BMW that was a recurring theme throughout the Susie Lamplew inquiry. Canaan also bears a striking resemblance to the widely publicised artist's impression of Mr Kipper, and he thought of himself as a smartly dressed, romantic charmer, who liked to woo his lovers with champagne which again the man seen outside Shorrell's Road was reported to have been carrying. It was possible that he and Susie had already met, and that he'd been seeing her. An attractive, professional-looking young woman like Susie was certainly Canaan's type, and they were known to use two of the same wine bars in Fulham Road, Crocodile Tears and the White Horse. He was a womaniser, and certainly would have spent every spare moment chatting up any woman that he came across. Susie had also hinted to friends that she'd been seeing someone that she believed had links to Bristol, which was, of course, Canaan's adopted hometown. Canaan was also suspected by West Midlands police of being the house-for-sale rapist, who'd committed more than 20 attacks on women alone at home in the Birmingham area in the late 1970s. Posing as a house buyer, he would attack and rape them once inside the house. The rapist was never brought to justice for these crimes, but if this was Canaan, then posing as a house buyer as Mr Kipper did would be an established part of his MO, and detectives in both London and Bristol agree that Susie's disappearance bears the hallmarks of the same MO as Shirley's abduction. But two other pieces of circumstantial evidence stand out more for me personally, implying Canaan's guilt. Firstly, his nickname amongst other inmates whilst in prison was Kipper, due to his preference for wearing that type of necktie. And secondly, and perhaps most cryptically, was the false number plate found on Shirley's Mini when it was discovered in Canaan's garage. SLP386S Now out of all of the letter and number combinations that could be chosen, why that one? Canaan has never satisfactorily explained the reasoning behind the choice of this, and many police and crime authors strongly believe that this is a cryptic clue from the devious mind of John Canaan, or even some form of sick trophy. The SLP could of course be Susie Lamplew, the three could mean Canaan's third victim, after Sandra and Susie, the 86 is the same year that Susie disappeared and Sandra was murdered, and the S could be the initial of any of the three. It could also stand for Shorrells Road, Stevenage Road, the location where Susie's body lies. The possibilities are endless, really. Police have also considered the possibility that these could be grid references for a map, and among the countless areas searched, one area that's been consistently searched for Susie's body is the site of the former Norton Army Barracks in Worcestershire both in 2000 when the case was reopened and again in 2001. This is a site that's consistently been linked to Canaan. He's claimed to have hinted that's where Susie is buried and he's made several references to it. A location three miles away from there was also searched in 2010 as well as the area around where Shirley's body was discovered. 
but no trace of Susie has still ever been found in any of these places. So what more do you need to think about the person responsible? And what sets off a person to commit such an appalling catalogue of crime? John David Guise Canan was born in Sutton Coalfield in Warwickshire on the 20th of February 1954. He shares my birthday actually, which is... Uh, it, so does Kurt Cobain and Ian Brown does as well. And Tony Wilson, Manchester legend, but I don't really want to share my birthday with John Canan to be honest, so that's a bit shit. He's born to loving parents Cyril and Daphne Canan. John's mother was short and fair-haired and a neat and reliable homemaker, while his father Cyril was an ex-RAF officer who was widely respected in Sutton Coalfield and by colleagues in his chosen field of work in the motor trade throughout the Midlands. John was the second child of the couple, having an older sister named Sheila and later a younger brother named Anthony but from an early age it was John who occupied his parents' attention the most. Physically like his father, John had the same dark hair and piercing blue eyes, but was also like him in his character traits, even before he started school. Both reacted quickly if they didn't get their own way, and before long the whole household revolved around John and his wants. John and his father would frequently be at war over things like this, and his mother constantly had to act as the peacemaker between the two. In 1958, he was sent to a private boys' school, Keys, but for the first few years, John enjoyed his education there. But after a couple of years, two things happened to change this view. Firstly, a new headmaster came in with a new, stricter regime of discipline. This meant beatings and corporal punishment were now a regular part of school life. But worst, shortly afterwards, Canaan claims that he was sexually abused by a male teacher there in a vacant classroom. He was made to drop his trousers and was then touched by the teacher, who made John touch him also. After this experience, which went on for months by all accounts, John tried to avoid school like the plague. He'd try absolutely everything to avoid going. The abuse made him become a nervous, highly strung child and led to him developing a bad stammer. As a result, he was bullied somewhat and couldn't develop any close friends. He didn't have a close relationship with his siblings either and he'd always had an uneasy relationship with his father as it was and so he felt quite anxious and alone. By age 12, John had come to realise that he had emotional problems and he blamed what happened at Keys for this. This was to become a lifelong trait with him, blaming others for his actions and following this he began committing crimes. In 1968 he came to police attention for an indecent assault that he committed against a young woman in a telephone kiosk. He put his hand up her skirt and although he tried to laugh it off as horseplay, he was arrested and given 12 months probation. Following this he continued his education and although he was a frequent truant, he was to leave school in 1971 with five certificates of secondary education and three ordinary level general certificates of secondary education. He was also a gifted athlete and had been offered a sports council grant to train with the leading athletic club, the Birchfield Harriers, but his father, for some reason, vetoed the idea. When John left school, he immediately joined the Merchant Navy, but he hated the discipline and restrictive life that's part and parcel of it, and three months later, he was back home on dry land. His father was, by this time, 
the general manager at Reeve and Steadford Car Wholesalers in Birmingham, and John became a car salesman at his father's firm. This was a job that he enjoyed, and he developed a love of cars, which he was to have a lifelong enthusiasm for. He enjoyed what he saw was the glamour of it all, although he had very much an inflated opinion of what he did, and he remained alone with few, if any, close friendships. It was around this time that he met a girl named June Vale, who worked in a florist's near to the garage showroom. She became John's only steady girlfriend, and they began a relationship and quickly became engaged. The engagement lasted for an unusually long seven years, before the couple married in May 1978 at Four Oaks Methodist Church in Birmingham, not having a home of their own yet, although they were trying to buy a flat in nearby Minworth. The newlywed couple moved in with John's parents. Soon afterwards, June became pregnant and in 1979 gave birth to the couple's daughter, Louise. John soon became bored with marriage, however, and would spend time in pubs and nightclubs instead of being at home with his wife and daughter. He began drinking and smoking increasingly heavily and also began cheating on June frequently with various girls. Already a salesman, able to sweet talk and charm with effect. By the beginning of 1980, John had practically deserted his family, and he was by that time a bordering alcoholic. In February that year, he met a woman we shall call Sharon Major, who was about six years older than him, and began an affair with her. John's father found out about this, and after challenging his son, John left his job, his wife and child, and moved out of the Canaan household into a guest house in Erdington. He lived here for two months before he moved in with Sharon and her children in April 1980. Neglecting his own wife and daughter, John instead threw himself into his new ready-made family. They went on trips to Blackpool, Ilfracombe, and John took over as some sort of surrogate father to the two children taking them to football matches and doing things like getting them new bikes and attending hospital appointments with them. He was still financially supporting June and Louise as well as this pot noodle family that he had and he took a job with a car firm in Bideford in Devon to make ends meet. He would stay with Sharon's parents in Ilfracombe through the week and then would commute back to Sutton Coalfield at weekends. Occasionally he'd stay with his mother to see June and Louise but the financial implications of this existence, trying to support two families, was crippling him. As his finances were sinking ever deeper into trouble, his drinking increased, often amounting to a bottle of scotch a day. As a result, cracks began to appear in his relationship with Sharon. They now began to argue about everything and nothing, and as Sharon began to realise that whilst John could be caring and sweet, there was also a dark side to him. He lied to her about his finances and she came to learn that he'd also greatly exaggerated his position at work. He'd even told her that he was divorced from June when the couple was still married. He was in turn jealous of Sharon's past relationships with other men and once, during a row about these, he gave her a black eye. After one particular row concerning her ex-husband visiting their children at Christmas, John stormed off out and disappeared for more than a week. He returned on the 30th of December 1980 with a bottle of wine in an attempt to patch things up. But by this time, Sharon had decided to end the relationship for good. John Canaan does not take a rejection very well, as you'll see. 
Sharon Major was later to claim that she was adamant that she didn't want him back, but she had consented to have one last sex session with John, for old time's sake, as some kind of way of putting the relationship to rest. Now I'm never sure if the goodbye shag is a healthy thing personally, and it certainly wasn't here. During intercourse, John placed his hands around Sharon's throat so that she had difficulty breathing. When Sharon said to him, Don't, you'll kill me doing that, John replied with a fierce, wild-eyed look. I mean to kill you. I'm going to kill you. You've hurt me so badly, I'm going to hurt you too. I don't give a fuck about your children. John then reached for a plastic bag he brought with him and emptied the contents onto the bed. The bag contained a large vibrator, an air gun and a pair of black rubber pants with a false male penis attached to them. He picked up and pointed the gun at Sharon, but she wrestled it off him and it fell to the floor. He then savagely forced Sharon into a two-hour sexual assault, for want of a better word. Rape is an even more accurate word, for there's no way that she consented to his advances. He struck her several times in the face until she bled and pulled out large clumps of her hair. He used the vibrator and the false penis upon Sharon and attempted several times to unsuccessfully commit buggery upon her, even frog-marching her into another bedroom with his arm around her neck to search for a lubricant to aid this. At the top of the stairs, Sharon made a move to break free from his grasp and both she and John fell down the stairs with Sharon severely hurting her back. At this point, John reverted to his old self, caring and full of apologies. He telephoned for an ambulance while Sharon lapsed into unconsciousness. In the ambulance travelling to hospital, Sharon said to him, You really did mean to kill me, didn't you? To which he replied, Yes, I did. Now, I know that was a bit of a graphic description of that, but that's what we do on the show, isn't it? It's all or nothing, and the details are important, just so you can see the kind of monster that John Canan is. Sharon was left with a swollen face, two black eyes, severe internal bleeding, damage to her scalp and dental treatment needed on her front teeth. Her father was so shocked at her appearance when her parents came up to care for her following her release from hospital that he hardly recognised her. This unsurprisingly signalled the end of her relationship with John Canan and she resisted all subsequent attempts at reconciliation from him afterwards but she never reported the attack to police because she sadly had no faith in the legal system. She was afraid that John would get just a few years imprisonment and then track her down and finish her off when he was released. She was afraid that he might try to get to her through her children, but first and foremost, she was just plain terrified of John Canan. Nine years later, the rape and GBH committed against Sharon formed part of the charges against Canaan when he stood trial in April 1989. So he wasn't to get away with it at all. After the breakup of his relationship with Sharon, Canaan went back to the Sutton House guesthouse in Erdington to stay. He had absolutely nothing and for several weeks he wallowed in self-pity, drinking ever heavily. During this time, he began fantasising about committing a robbery to secure easy money and had gone so far as to procure a lock knife to add an air of menace to doing this. 
Just a few hundred yards from the guesthouse was Yenton Service Station, and one evening in early February 1981, Canaan entered the filling station and at knife point forced the two female cashiers to hand over the contents of the till, about £260. Now he had some funds, and with it, an acquired taste for robbery for easy money. He was no master criminal though, and his next crime was to earn him an eight-year prison sentence. When you hear the somewhat sanitised details of it, and they are sanitised, it's bound to cement in your mind the kind of monster that John Canan is. Friday the 6th of March 1981 began like any other day for Jean Bradford, who ran a ladies' knitwear shop in Sutton Coalfield with her mother, who was also a business partner. Theirs was a small shop, measuring just 15 feet by 10 feet, with a small office part at the rear, with a door that led to a backyard and an alleyway, and although small, it ticked over nicely as a business. 37-year-old Jean was married with a 17-month-old son and was pregnant with her second child at the time, and the child would often accompany his mother to work and play happily while she served a trickle of customers. At about 2.15pm that Friday afternoon, the proprietor of the shop next door called in for a chat for a few minutes and departed soon after, leaving Jean alone there with her son. About 20 minutes later, a man entered the shop holding a handkerchief over his lower face, as though he was about to blow his nose. Just as he entered, the telephone in the back office rang and Jean went to answer it, making apologies to the man. With the son by his side, as Jean held the line waiting for a caller to connect to her, the man strode into the office. He was now holding a knife, which he pointed at her, saying he would fucking cut her up if she wasn't kept quiet. Then he said to her, if you fuck about, I'll cut the fucking baby too, and then disconnected the incoming call. Jean picked up her son and held him to her protectively, and the intruder told her to stand in the corner of the office and face the wall. By this time, the child had sensed his mother's fear and began to scream, and Jean was threatened to shut the fucking little girl up. She explained that the child was a boy who was frightened, and she asked if she could give the child a drink that was on the table in the shop to calm him. The man went and got it, and after being given a drink, the child did calm somewhat and was silent. After finding the cash box and pocketing its contents, the man asked Jean where more money could be found, and she told him her purse was in the shop. Just then, Jean's mother walked in and made straight for the office, to see her daughter and grandson being held at knife point. Now holding three people, the man asked again about money, and Jean's mother requested that he let Jean and the baby go, but the man refused and told her that he would fucking cut you as well if you don't shut up. Then the telephone rang, and the man, who both women could now tell was becoming more panicky and nervous by the second, responded by slashing the telephone cord, cutting off the ringing. He then went and locked the shop front door and turned off the lights. Returning to the back office, he now used cord cut from clothing rails in the shop to bind Jean's mother's hands and feet together, and she was made to stand in the opposite corner of the office, facing the wall. Then he turned his attention back to Jean. He began fiddling with her dress, and told her he was going to secure her feet with her tights. He made her put the child down, 
and then lifted up her dress and told her to remove her underwear. She refused, but complied when he said, Well, you don't want your baby cut, do you? You fucking do it or else. Moving behind Jean, he then held the knife to her throat and whispered to her that if she didn't want to fucking well get hurt, she was to undo his trousers and give him oral sex. He again threatened the child, and Jean was forced to comply. He then forced her to stand up, and despite protests and pleading from both Jean and her mother about Jean being pregnant, he then raped her in the presence of his son and her mother. By this time, Jean's husband, who'd called and found the line cut off, had arrived at the shop thinking something was wrong. Finding the door locked, he hammered frantically on it before heading next door to see if Jean was there. She of course wasn't, so he returned and, and continued banging on the front door. By this time, the intruder was ready to leave. Before he left through the rear door, he asked Jean for a name and address, took Jean's mother's car keys, and told her not to call the police because he knew where they lived and if she did, something would happen to her little boy. He then went out into the alleyway, jumped over a fence and disappeared. Now I know that was a bit graphic too. Um, monster isn't even a strong enough word, is it? And that's somewhat sanitised version, as I said. To commit something so foul is bad enough as it is, but to do it in front of that woman's closest loved ones, well, there just isn't words really. It is a whole new level of evil, that, isn't it? Thankfully, Jean did not take the rapist's advice and called police immediately, as soon as she'd let her husband into the shop. When police arrived, both women were able to give a good description of the rapist, 25 to 30 years of age, tall and of medium build. He had thick, naturally curly dark hair, was unshaven and had a pale complexion. He was dressed in a white and blue checked shirt, black trousers and shoes and was wearing black gloves. His voice bore a slight Birmingham accent and both women remembered that the man's eyebrows were very thick and met over his nose. A photo fit picture was published in the local press and shown on television which had a great response as people were outraged at such a disgusting and appalling crime. And sure enough, just one week later the rapist was arrested after his name was volunteered as a result of information coming in after this photo fit. It was John Canan. When Canan was arrested, there was a distinct shaved space between his eyebrows with two very visible, very recent nick marks. He claimed that he often shaved his eyebrows out of vanity, claiming that it was nothing to do at all with the fact that he was very like the photo fit of the rapist. He refused to give a police surgeon permission to take blood and hair samples from him claiming that it was an infringement of his privacy and liberty, but was to admit at interview being near the shop in Sutton Coalfield at the time in question, and agreed to take part in an identity parade, as long as it was done there and then. Told that this wasn't possible to arrange at short notice on a Saturday night, Canan asked for some time to think about his options. After a few hours in the holding cell, the interview resumed, and Canan now decided to confess. He admitted the robbery and the rape and went on to make a statement describing details of the attack that only the perpetrator could know, things that had been said and the exact actions of the rapist. He also told police where he disposed of the knife used in the attack, in a local pond known as Black Root Pool, 
and it was subsequently recovered by police frogmen. After signing a statement to this effect, he was returned to the cell, and the following morning, he also freely admitted the robbery at the Tenton service station. In what was to be a common theme for all of John Canan's interviews with police, however, he had an answer for everything, and usually it was one of mitigation, attempting to distance himself from the offence, make excuses and blame others for his actions. His parents, school teacher who allegedly abused him, Sharon Major, etc, etc. He claimed that he hadn't intended to rape Jean, it was an afterthought and spur-of-the-moment thing, and he made pains to point out that she hadn't been physically hurt during the appalling assault, as if that counted for something, yeah? As if that, oh, it's fine, you know, I, well, I didn't hurt her, but I did probably destroy her life. Yeah, right on. He'd robbed the petrol station because he was depressed and desperate, and his desperation over Sharon ending their relationship had driven him to commit both crimes. See, it's always someone else's fault, all the time. Canan was remanded in custody at Sutton Coalfield Magistrates Court charged with the offences that he'd confessed to, and no bail was applied for. On the 26th of June 1981, he appeared at Birmingham Crown Court, where Mr Justice Brown jailed him for a total of eight years for these offences. He served this sentence in various prisons around the UK, more often than not on Rule 43 protection, as he was despised by inmates and staff alike for his vile crime, with the contempt that sex offenders get in prison. Quite rightly so too, I think. Five years passed, after which time Canan was allocated a place in a prison pre-release hostel in London in Duquesne Road, not far from Wormwood Scrubs, where he'd been transferred to on the 25th of January 1986. He was still technically in custody, but he lived at the hostel, and so had this degree of freedom and chance to readjust to liberty. As long as he reported back to the hostel at pre-agreed times, he was more or less free to go where he pleased. We know that one of the places he visited was Poole in Dorset over the weekend of the 2nd to the 4th of May 1986. A plain display car park ticket from this period was found in the clutter of his car when it was searched after his arrest for Shirley Banks' murder. This was, as we said before, the weekend that Sandra Court was murdered, five miles away. His eventual release from the hostel and prison came on Friday the 25th of July 1986 just three days before Susie Lamplew vanished from just three miles away. After being released, Canan decided to relocate to Bristol, a city that he considered would be opportunistic for him, and perhaps one that he'd already alluded as being from in his successful charming act. He began seeking employment again in the car salesman trade, and finding a position at a family-run car sales firm known as Holders in the town of Kongsbury, albeit using forged references. It wasn't long before he was dismissed from here for unorthodox dealings with a rival sales firm, and Canan was back onto the DHSS to live. Again broke and angry, alone in a bedsit in Clifton, Canan decided to strike out at someone again, wanting to make somebody pay. On Monday the 6th of October 1986, an unsuccessful attempt was made to abduct a young woman in the White Ladies Road area of Bristol. The attempt was reported to police and a photo fit of the attempted abductor made. It bore a striking likeness to John Canan. 
A later check of his bank statements revealed that he withdrew money from a cash point in Clifton that afternoon at 1.31pm, close to the scene of the offence and within 30 minutes of it occurring. The amount withdrawn was £25, and Canan used this to purchase a train ticket to London, confirmed because he used another cash point in south-east London's York Road at 9.21pm that evening. The purpose of this visit has never been revealed, but we know that before returning to Bristol that same evening, he stopped on the way back at Reading in Berkshire, as this was the same night that he abducted and raped Donna Tucker. He was back in Bristol early the next day, as yet another cash point withdrawal confirmed this. It was a few weeks later when Canan was arrested on suspicion of Donna's rape, although was not charged as a result at the time. Also by this time, Canan was involved in an affair with married solicitor Annabel Rose, but undoubtedly attractive to some women, Canan was also at this time engaging in several one-night stands, and was funding his charming persona of roses, smart dress and champagne by robbing building societies for money, which went on through the early months of 1987. He also inherited £7,000 from a distant relative, a sum which had been set aside by his family to help John get back onto his feet following his release from prison. Canan subsequently used this and moved into a lavish, spacious flat with a garage in a block known as Foy House which is at the end of Bridge Road, not far from Bristol's Clifton Suspension Bridge. He also purchased through finance a black BMW car, which he parked prominently outside the block, as it was a tight fit to get it into the garage. The flat was furnished tastefully and expensively, filled with decent watercolour pictures and a blue cottage suite. Casually strewn on the expensive coffee table and bookshelves were recipe books, guides on interior design and books about philosophy a subject that Canaan had always held an interest in. His clothes were now expensive and stylish looking. Now he looked the part again, an eligible, good-looking bachelor, and appeared as a young, successful executive. So armed with cash on the hip for once, on the 14th of June 1987, Canaan went to one of his favourite haunts, the Avon Gorge Hotel in Clifton. It was there that evening that he met a 24-year-old former Olympic skater named Jilly Page. Canaan ended up seducing her and sleeping with her, and she was to later say, I've never met anybody so charming. He has this way of making a woman feel very special. Although they were to only meet another three times before Jilly's work commitments signalled the end of their brief encounter, it was a conversation they had the following day, which proves to be most telling on why Jilly is one of Canon's many lovers to mention specifically. Canan gave Jilly a lift to Birmingham on the 15th of June, and during the journey the conversation turned to some rather macabre and taboo subjects. Canan first began discussing bondage, necrophilia and anal intercourse. Pleasant, eh? Gone are the days where you used to obviously count colour cars to pass a journey, you know? And then he asked Jilly if anybody knew where she was. He then began discussing the police searching for bodies in shallow graves in woods and in rivers, whereas he considered the best way to get rid of a body was in the concrete foundations on a construction site. He then said, very tellingly, that's probably what happened to Susie Lamplew. Further, when they pulled off the motorway and into a service station, they sat talking in the car for a bit, 
Canan, at some point, for some reason, placed his hands around Jilly's neck and said, You know, I'll never hurt you. You're much too nice to hurt. Maybe this is the way Susie died. Now, what a strange thing to say that is, wouldn't you agree? Jilly had a very, very lucky escape there, I think. As I said before, he was still seeing Annabelle at this time, but he continued his succession of one-night stands, yet felt aggrieved when Annabelle ended the relationship in mid-August 1987. He turned nasty, as we've seen his tendency to be whenever he feels rejection. Although he was never physically violent towards Annabelle, he did threaten her with it, and he made her life a general misery. He threatened to tell her husband about the affair, and when she called his bluff on this, using a false name, Canan telephoned police and made extraordinary allegations of unprofessional and unlawful conduct against her, claims which he repeated in a telephone conversation to the Birmingham Law Society. Again using a false name and not giving an address, he then employed the services of private detective Tom Ailes to spy on the personal and business details of Annabelle and her family, claiming it was to do with the recovery of important documents relating to his father's business. Ailes duly produced photocopied handwritten notes that he'd prepared as a result of this surveillance, which Canan paid him £55 for and took away with him. This document was to form the most crucial and telling piece of the evidence against John Canan at his trial for the murder of Shirley Banks, because it was this document that contained Shirley's thumbprint. He was still smarting about this rejection during the first week of October 1987 when he made an evening visit to the Souter Dating Agency in Bristol's Park Street. Now this was an agency that specialised in video dating. There was none of this swipe left or plenty of fish bollocks back then. Back then, for 95 quid, prospective suitors appeared in a five-minute video selling themselves to prospective partners and Canan, using the name John Peterson, appeared in one of these. The proprietor, Caroline Francis, remembers him as someone who seemed at the time fun, attractive and outgoing. And in the video, which is widely available if you search out online, Canan can be seen portraying himself as the big I am. Confident, successful, intelligent and charming. A guy who knows what he wants and what he'd achieved. He appears so charming in his video that at one point when asked what period of history he would have liked to have lived in, he replies without missing a beat, the Elizabethan, going on to explain that he could see himself in tights and a ruff and on the bridge of some galleon being a pirate. Yet he several times used words out of context or incorrectly, and he just comes across as arrogant, I thought, the type of person who, if you listen to them, they made out they could run faster than email, you know, that, that type of person. Watch the video, a link is with the show notes, and you'll see what I mean. Hope you got scurvy in your Elizabethan fantasy, Bellend. Caroline Francis and her husband were never to use this video, claiming that there was something not quite right with John Peterson. Good sense, really. Years later, Canan would claim that he'd only gone there for a bit of fun and had no serious intentions to meet anybody from the agency. But why then would a person do that? If this is a man who could charm the birds out of the trees and was attractive enough to women that he'd had more than 100 one-night stands, as he claimed, then what was the need? Undoubtedly, I believe he wanted to pick and choose a victim that he was most attracted by to abuse and make suffer at his hands. We know he was proper in the grip of these urges right at that time because two days later, 
Canaan attempted to abduct Julia Holman from Cannon's Marsh car park, and when that was unsuccessful, undeterred, he went out again the following evening, looking for another victim. Shirley Banks, as we sadly know, wasn't as lucky as Julia. So John Canaan was, or is, undoubtedly a highly intelligent man. He was charming, attractive to women, he had the gift of the gab and probably could have been successful at anything he put his mind to. Yet he had an evil streak of sadism, arrogance and cruelty in him that proved predominant. And this still remains to this day, undoubtedly. To listen to John Canaan, he's never committed any crime bar the rapes that DNA prove undoubtedly that he'd committed and the crimes that he confessed to, with mitigation I must add. He still, to anyone who will listen, protests his innocence of the murders of Shirley Banks and Sandra Court, still claims he has nothing to do whatsoever with the disappearance of Susie Lamplew, yet he's been reported to boast claims to have information that he knows who killed Susie, Shirley and another woman, but refuses to name names. He's often been questioned by police over the years and still maintains the fact that he has information he's keeping to himself for the time being, because as the control freak John Canan knows, knowledge is power and he thoroughly enjoys playing the game. Yet John Canan lives largely in a world of his own, and you never know what is truth or what is fabrication. His prison nickname, once Kipper, is now Billy Liar. There's no logical, valid or decent reason for John David Guise Canan to ever walk our streets again. His crimes are absolutely horrendous and he deserves for life to mean just that for him. Think of all the people whose lives his actions changed forever. Sharon, Donna, Jean, Shirley's family. I'll let you guys decide if you think he's culpable in the murder of Sandra Court and the disappearance of Susie Lamplew. I know the evidence is circumstantial in both, but you can't deny that it's powerful circumstantial evidence. Beyond reasonable doubt even, I firmly believe that if he hadn't been apprehended that day in Leamington Spa, he would have undoubtedly have gone on to kill again, and a potential serial killer was stopped there, if he wasn't one already by that time. I believe myself that he'd already killed at least twice before Shirley, and he's responsible for the cases he's the prime suspect in, I also think there are a number of unsolved killings in 1986 and 1987 that Canaan should be looked at as a person of interest in. Celebrated crime authors Christopher Berry D and Robin O'Dell corresponded with Canaan in prison for two years in the mid-2000s, resulting in a remarkable book written with Canaan's cooperation being released in 2007. The book, entitled Prime Suspect, contains many transcripts of John Canaan's police interviews and is a chronicle study of his known crimes. It was a massive help in creating this episode, to which I must pass thanks to the authors, and a link to it can be found with this week's show notes. I recommend it thoroughly, just so you can see the type of predator that John Canaan is by reading his own words. You can clearly see his intelligence and charm, but also how manipulative, scheming, and how much of a fantasist he is. Although I've tried to get as much detail into this episode as possible, as I always strive to do, try reading two years worth of research. I haven't touched on half of it, and I highly recommend the book once again. There are also several documentaries available online concerning John Canaan's crimes that are well worth checking out. Many that tie in as he's the prime suspect in the Susie Lamplew disappearance, 
but also including a Crime Watch documentary broadcast in 1989 about the case that Canaan tried and failed in a high court bid to get stopped from broadcasting. What can I say? Crime Watch wins again. BBC, you are still twats though. I'd wanted to cover the crimes of John Canaan ever since I began doing the show a year ago, and it's a case that's been suggested that I cover from several people, most notably Andy Parrish, as it's from his neck of the woods, and he's mentioned it more than once. There you go, Andy. I hope you've enjoyed. This is one of the longest episodes I've written and produced of the show. There's that much to cover in the complex life of John Canan and the accounts of his crimes. A perfect two-part series finale with Susie's story, and one that I hope you've all enjoyed and found informative anyway. There will be a discussion thread about the episode up in the Facebook group, so it would be great to hear your thoughts on it. And that, folks, is a wrap for Series 2 of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. It's been a ball and an absolute pleasure, as I've said. I hope that each week you've joined me, that it's come through clearly for everybody just how much I enjoy doing the show. It really is my passion and my pastime. And after a little break of a few short weeks, I shall be back with more of the same. I say it every week, but thank you all from the bottom of my heart for the continued support, listens, shares and reviews of the show. You guys really are the best. You make the show and I look forward to being back very soon. For the final time this series, I've been Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys happy and safe times and I shall speak to you again very soon. And as it's the season finale, don't have nightmares, do sleep well. Good night. <laughs>